Hi everyone, this season 4 finale ended up being such a bumper episode that we split it in half. Welcome to part 2, in which we dig into the current moment, the effect of Brexit, and why we're calling this moment in history, destructive unionism. If you haven't heard part 1 yet, you can follow the link in the episode description. Do go back and listen to Tim break down the history of the union and how we got to this moment. By the way, right after we recorded, the Sunday Times released a series of surveys showing that majorities in Northern Ireland and Scotland support having referendums on breaking with the UK and that most across the UK expect Scotland to leave in the next 10 years, as well as showing a rise in support for Irish unity. So our episode was even more topical than we thought. Here's part two. Hello, and welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, welcome, Naomi. Anwar, Fad, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Why did we, how did we get started on this whole constructive unionism thing? Basically, I was reminded of it because I was listening to a really great podcast called Three Castles Burning, which is about the history of Dublin. Um, it's a tip for me. It's really good. And it was describing a lot of Dublin's streetscape today. And a lot of the really nice, like, red brick old public housing in central Dublin and civic buildings like the Ivy Market, they were built in this time. And some lots of them were built by like philanthropic Protestant industrial families like the Guinness family, for example, during this whole period of constructive unionism. And for some reason, it just kind of struck a bell with me. And I thought if that was constructive unionism, then perhaps the period of British history that we've just been living through is a period of destructive unionism. Right, okay. I can't wait to hear you out, Naomi. Lay it out. Okay. So we've documented pretty much since day one on this podcast how the whole issue of the border and the specific circumstances of Northern Ireland were just totally ignored and steamrolled over in the calling of the Brexit referendum, um, like the whole campaign, which, you know, was really striking and like startling at the time. But when you go back over this history, it actually almost looks in keeping. Um, but... It was just so ignored, like, and London went on ignoring it as long as it possibly could until they were forced to recognise that it was impossible to reconcile Brexit with the border and they would have to make a choice. So whether a soft Brexit where the whole UK stays in the customs union and single market and there's no need for checks anywhere or a hard Brexit, which is like the one that we got. And in that case, there has to be a border somewhere. And everyone agreed, including the UK government, that it couldn't be on the island of Ireland for, you know, sensitive historical reasons and like current economic practical reality. And so it ended up going in the Irish Sea. Right, which we discussed in our last Brexit update, of course. Discussed at length. So the ignoring of these circumstances of Northern Ireland and also like the profound ignorance, um, you know, in that so many voters for Brexit didn't even know that it was part of the UK or like consider it at all, just consider it at all. Like that's one part of it. Uh, but there's also the part like that this is primarily an English project. Like most of its support comes from English voters who are, are the largest population of all the voters in the different UK nations. And of course, a majority of voters in Northern Ireland and Scotland voted against this thing. 
Right, yeah, I have the I have the figures here somewhere. Yeah, sixty seven percent voted against Brexit in Scotland and fifty six percent in Northern Ireland. And of course, in Northern Ireland, that vote we have to remember was very much split according to old divides. So um, Irish identifying people overwhelmingly oppose Brexit, and uh, those who um, so so did those who aren't aligned with a particular identity. And the majority support for it came from British identifying population in the territory. Right, right. So just like to kind of come up to the present day, if we have a look at how this project has materially affected the lives of those people, um, you know, who many of whom never wanted this thing to happen in the first place, it's made them worse. It's mm. made them like day to day practically worse. Okay, right. So um, before you tell us exactly how, can you maybe like sum up where we are with Brexit or maybe correct yeah. me if I'm wrong here, actually, um, like the transition period ended on the 31st of December. So now the practical effects of Brexit are finally coming into force. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I understand correctly, this is all based on a kind of preliminary set of rules at the moment, largely because there wasn't enough time to put a proper plan in place. So we can expect to see a lot more negotiation on those rules in coming years. And one thing that's really murky in those rules is how exactly the border, the sea border works between Britain and Northern Ireland, right? Well, in a way, so like they've, they've agreed the deal, they're outside the EU, the deal is in force. So in that sense, the negotiations are finished. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact remains that those two parties, the EU and Britain, have very complex and profound economic relations and are neighbours and have political interests in common as well as rivalries. So they're going to be talking always. That's just like a fact of life. There's going to be talks. There's going to be t- moments of tension. There's going to be moments of friendship. That's a fact of life. There are some things that haven't been decided yet, a couple of things to do with financial services, but not really anything. The arrangements for Northern Ireland are set down. It's just that some of them don't kick in for another six months. Um, and, you know, there's there's calls for some of them to be reformed or changed, but that's not really going to happen. Okay. Um, so essentially, the British government got much of what it asked for, uh, which is a very hard, very extreme interpretation of the meaning of Brexit. So it's like a married couple and they've gone through a divorce and very they're you know, they're not sharing custody of the kids and they're not <laughs> entwining their lives in any way. They're basically present like pretending like the whole relationship that was built together never happened at all. And they're like strangers or at best acquaintances. Like like, like all the best divorces, Naomi. Yeah. Like it's not the EU and Norway, it's not EU Switzerland. It's like very estranged this wow. relationship. Um, so, you know, one of the good things, I guess, is that there aren't tariffs on goods that go between the territories. Um, but that is like the bare, bare, bare minimum. Like, um, what there is, is very onerous, deep, massive checks on, for example, food and drink. Um, the, the UK hasn't chose like not to align with like anything, even though it has like really similar standards at the moment. It, 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 decided, it wanted the power to change that so badly that it paid the price of having massive onerous checks on like loads of stuff from Britain going into the EU. And right. not just that, like there's been a lot of focus on physical goods, but, you know, the UK is actually a powerhouse in services. So stuff like teams of lawyers and architects would have from London would have built stuff and, and worked all over the EU and been like, they would have had enormous sort of money coming in from the kind of contracts from in the EU. Mm. But now legal degrees in legal qualifications from the UK are not recognized in the EU anymore. So they can't do that. 
architects can't design houses for the EU anymore because architectural degrees aren't recognised. Um, and the City of London, you know, the financial powerhouse that makes up like 7% of the whole UK economy has basically had a no-deal Brexit. Like, there are no provisions now for the City of London to to cater to EU customers in, right, like, most yeah. areas. Like, they've just been totally cut off. Um, so it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, the, the whole thing has been driven by a kind of ideological revolutionary fervor in the Boris Johnson government. They wanted sovereignty, this thing they called sovereignty at all costs, which is like the ability to change their own rules if they want. And that mm. had loads of really profound economic trade consequences and like consequences for ordinary people. But they wanted it and that's it. So they did it. That's what they've done. They've got this really, really distant relationship. Like, And it does seem strange. Like this is the party, like the Conservative Party, they're supposed to be pro-business. They're not like that at all. And it seems... You know, it does seem odd to us, like, because probably we grew up in a time when we were familiar with, like, a kind of pragmatic pro-business Britain or whatever. But, like, in the longer scheme of things, perhaps this kind of revolutionary fervor is not that, or ideological fervor is, is not that out of character. Wow, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, it does, I mean, cer certainly personally, it makes me interrogate that popular image that people had, you know, like, mm -hmm. was that actually based on anything real? Um, right. Because it, you know, it seems like quite, quite something else right now. Um, so what are the main criticisms uh, when it comes to Northern Ireland with how this new deal is coming into force? Right, so Northern Ireland specifically, um, you know, it's in a different situation from the island of Britain uh, because that's what was decided. In order to avoid a uh, border on the island of Ireland, Northern Ireland, for all intents and purposes, remains in line with the EU. And that means there has to be checks down the Irish Sea. And that has a big impact on, like, what people buy in the supermarket or the clothes that they buy, the products that they need, and lots of people's jobs. Because the way that, like, the stuff that people buy to live on gets to them is through very complex supply chains. And up until this moment, up until December 31st, supply chains in Europe were designed with essentially the whole island of Ireland was a bit like an appendage of the British market. So all of those products would go into Britain, they'd go to warehouses there, and then they'd be distributed on. So like a little packet might go to Wales, a little might go to Scotland, some goes to Dublin, some goes to Belfast. Um, that can't happen anymore because you're going in and out of a non-EU country. Um, and so what that means is that you're just having costs loaded on to the old supply chain routes and they're having to come through different ways and oh it's God. more important yeah. for Northern Ireland than it is for the Republic because they're like more economically integrated with the island of Britain they have like the same literal shops so like mm. Marks and Spencer would have just been sending the same stuff over to Northern Ireland before whereas now it's like that's not really possible um, so like every time a truck has to drive for longer or wait at a checkpoint or you know a business has to file loads of forms that costs loads of money and that money ultimately goes to the consumer it affects how many products are available to buy because um you know some of them just aren't feasible to send anymore because of the cost and other ones will be more expensive so that's what one of the big impacts you've got empty shelves um you've got a lot of people ordering stuff online and discovering that when the delivery turns up they get charged loads of vat and like huge levies to receive it and this is like a rude awakening for a lot of people um, but this is because it's coming from, you know, the UK. And all of this is fueling big demands for changes. They're like, oh, no, this is bad. We, this is, you know, this doesn't suit us. Uh, we, we don't we don't want this. Can this be fixed? 
And the EU is basically saying, like, this is literally what the British government asked for. We're not reopening this thing. Um, you know, we're not going to change this. This is as ordered. And um, if anything, these kinds of barriers are just going to get more and more intense. Because, like I said, a lot of the actual paperwork has been waived and it, it, it's going to kick in in a few months' time, um, like, in full. So it hasn't been waived, it's been suspended. Yeah, it's like a grace period or whatever. Not everything. Oh. Like, some things yeah. just kicked in from day one. But some aspects, yeah, they just they gave business extra time to prepare. And the other thing is that, like, January is a pretty quiet time for trade usually. So, mm. you know, we didn't see the immediate effect bite. And it will, as things go on, it will become, like, clearer and clearer. And it means that, you know, supply chains will have to change. Things will have to go directly um, to the Republic from France, for example, rather than coming through Britain and probably on then to Northern Ireland. And that changes, you know, what people, it changes what are in the shops, changes the kind of shops. But also, you know, it's going to mean changes in businesses. Businesses are going to go bust. Mm. People will be laid off. Now, ultimately, those businesses will maybe replaced, you know, in the new system, according to the new supply chains and stuff. But it will it will be a painful adjustment period. Okay, so yeah, this is a lot. This is a lot, and it seems like a lot coming all at one time. <clears throat> but of course, it goes further than trade, right? This is like you know, mm-hmm. loads of people are seeing effects on their personal and professional lives now straight away. So UK citizens have new visa requirements for travel into the EU. Um, not that anyone is doing that now, of course, but because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, but visas are now required if you spend more than 90 days in the Schengen area in any 180 day period. And like this is, you know, hmm, I mean, this is, it's not designed for so many categories of people. I kind of realized recently, like, um, I have a friend, uh, who lives here in Paris and her boyfriend lives in London and they live in each other's city. That's how they've lived, you know, their, their lives for a long time. And, uh, the boyfriend came over recently. Uh, he went even through the pandemic because he's planning to stay long term now in, um, in Paris or he was anyway. And when he got here, he said, well, I have to leave in 90 days. You know, like their, their relationship is, is, has been totally transformed um, by this. Um, he can't get residency status or anything because he doesn't actually live in France. Right. Yeah. Mm. And it's, you know, freedom of movement is a massive thing for people. And that's a very, you know, the freedom to go and take a job here or there without worrying. It's not just like mm. holidays. It's just like, yeah, freedom to have family on two sides of a border and go back and forth or whatever. It's a massive wow. concrete deal for people. Um, you know, there was a huge kerfuffle about how touring musicians are not exempted from this. So, like, if you're a band and you're or an orchestra and you're going on tour, if you've got any UK members, it's going to be really difficult for them to get the, like, required visas to do that. Um, mm. You know, Radiohead and other musicians were protesting about that. Um, but there's also loads of key programs that the UK has chosen to withdraw from. So, for example, you know, the European Health Insurance Card, uh, UK citizens will need to have health insurance for going into the EU now. Um, the popular Erasmus exchange scheme, of course, um, according to the chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, the EU just offered the British government to continue to take part in the scheme, but the British turned it down. They And, mm. you know, it's kind of, it's a bit nuts because like Erasmus is very, very popular, um, particularly among young people. And it, it caused a bit of an outcry. Yeah. And of course, like Erasmus, 
is so popular and it's so, so important. And for reasons that people mightn't always think about, uh, the main thing about Erasmus is that it's, it's funded. And this is not something that everyone realizes. People might see it as some kind of like fun exchange and no more than that. Uh, but the fact that it's funded, you get about between 200 and 400 euros per month uh, to go on Erasmus. And you don't have to pay university fees to the place that you're going to. So it's a student exchange program that is really, really very accessible. You know, for, so like for people who have economic problems trying to get an education, this is an unbelievable opportunity and it's a huge equalizer people um who can like get the benefits of erasmus no matter whether they've been to a private school or whether they've you know their parents could pay for it or not they come back with huge employability now the irish government has stepped in here when it comes to people who live in northern ireland the irish government has said it's going to pay for anyone in northern ireland to continue to have access to Erasmus, as well as the European Health Insurance Card. I was really curious about how does this work? Northern Ireland is technically, you know, as part of the UK, is also left with Brexit. How, how is this still happening? So I went to Neil Richmond, who's a TD and spokesman on Europe with the coalition Fine Gael party, and asked him to explain exactly how is this all going to work. The European Commission has agreed to it. It was flagged quite a bit in advance by the Irish government of, of the key area that they wanted to ensure um, that we had the, the same system north and south. It's more or less been ironed out fully at this stage, whereby the Northern Irish institutions, because it's not just universities for Erasmus+, Plus, they'll register with the Higher Education Authority and they'll be able to access Erasmus+, Plus and partner with another member state institution through Ireland, through the Higher, Higher Education Authority, the Republic. It's going to cost the Irish government about 2.1 million euro a year to put into place, but it's been signed off and it's literally just the small minor technical details to iron out to ensure it'll be there for the next academic year. And applications can start probably in the next six weeks to eight weeks, depending on you know the pandemic and how that's impacted people going on Erasmus anyway. Right. So it'll be up to the institutions now that want to take part of this in, in, in the north to kind of get on that registration yeah. system now. And then once they've done that, the timeline is such that students coming in from next September should be able to, to go on Erasmus as before. It, it'll be completely seamless for the student. The student, um, if they're in Queens or Jordanstown or one of the further education institutions, they'll be able to go through Erasmus just like they would have done before. Um, obviously, all these institutions want this. They've been working with the Irish government, the Northern Executive, the Irish Universities Association, which is obviously an all-island body, and they'll go through it now, whereby it's up, the institutions are registering with the Higher Education Authority, and that's where the technical side of it is. But for the student on the ground, the potential Erasmus students, both incoming and outgoing, it shouldn't be any different to what they would have experienced six months ago or a year ago. I suppose from the Irish government point of view, it not just feeds into the sort of the overarching policy of not leaving anyone in the north behind, but also when you're talking about the all-island economy and an all-island destination, higher education is key to that. So even though they're normally in two different jurisdictions, people are looking at, be it Queen's University, Belfast or Trinity or GMIT through the same lens. And they want to make sure that the students can have access to that. And it's certainly something that's in everyone's interests. And... This will be available, it will cover students irrespective of their nationality, is it? It just matters their residence or how does it work? 
as long as they're full-time students in those institutions, just like any other opportunity with Erasmus+, Plus, it won't be any different. They don't need to have an Irish passport, a European passport. It's open to all, just as it was before. And that's really important too, that you don't need to distinguish this based on nationality or anything else. But once you're a resident, you're a full-time student, therefore, um, then you're eligible for Erasmus just like you were beforehand. And has the British government had any sort of say in this? Are they, you know, do they have an opinion about it? They, they must have a reason for not wanting to be part of Erasmus to begin with, right? Yeah, well, the reason given by the British government, that, and I think it's a really disappointing one, they, they would always make out that the UK didn't get the, a fair shake of Erasmus, that they were far more of a recipient that lots of people wanted to come and study in British universities, which I would see as a good thing, but they're saying that that was becoming too costly. So it was really disappointing. And a reason why this decision wasn't necessarily announced as such until the deal was agreed or in the, or in the, or as close to confirmation as possible was because it was only late enough on that the British government highlighted that, yes, we won't take part in Erasmus. Bear in mind that Boris Johnson said, I think a year ago, that the British government would aim to continue in Erasmus. So it's really disappointing. They are staying in part of other programmes like the Horizon 2020 or what will come after that, which are really important. It would have been great if all British and UK institutions had stayed within Erasmus, but that wasn't an option open. And we wanted to make sure that those in Northern Ireland still had the same continuing opportunities. It's something that's actually looked upon very favourably from uh, counterparts across the EU because Northern Ireland is somewhere and the islands as a whole is somewhere that people do want to partner with for Erasmus Plus projects, not just in the third level setting, but also the other projects that are allowed for for the training and things like that. You know, the, the kind of the widening from Erasmus to Erasmus Plus. A lot of organisations and uh, institutions in Northern Ireland have a really strong track record there. A lot of people, you know, want to go and study in Northern the Northern Irish institutions. And I think they're, they are highly regarded and equally we want to make sure that Erasmus take-up is maintained as much as possible. And people have to remember that it was an, an Irish commissioner, Peter Sutherland, who set up Erasmus in the first place. So we've great pride in it as a project and as a scheme. And we can absolutely sell this as an all-island approach that people from across the, the EU and beyond, because there's many non-member states take part in Erasmus, can look at Ireland North and South as an opportunity. And we look at the various centres of excellence as you look at the proposal for the sort of Northwest University. The person who does Erasmus might look to do their postgraduate study here, might look to do research study here. The opportunities for partnership in the new form of Horizon 2020 will be great. And it's something that we have to exhaust that. Um, we have to exhaust every opportunity that Brexit presents in order to even out the overall downside. But higher education including this, these plans with Erasmus, are huge opportunities uh, for the entire island. Could you tell me a little bit about the other, I suppose, benefit that's being offered to people in the north, which is the European Health Insurance Card? I understand that uh, the Republic has also offered to cover that. Yeah, so again, this comes down to the, the long-standing promise that we wouldn't leave anyone in Northern Ireland behind, not just through Erasmus Plus and the withdrawal agreement and the the prevention of a return of a hard border, but also allowing residents in Northern Ireland to continue to access the European Health Insurance Card. This is this is a bigger cost. This is this will cost possibly up to two hundred million euro, but it'll ensure that people travelling from Northern Ireland anywhere in the EU will continue to have access to healthcare. Again, the prime reason to do this is the right thing to do. If someone gets sick and they're abroad in the continent, bear in mind a lot of people who travel from Northern Ireland to the continent do so through Dublin Airport or even not. 
um, Northern Ireland will be recognised through the Republic in terms of a, the EU the EU provision of the health insurance card. This is something that, you know, post the Brexit referendum, I think it was the Daily Telegraph during the summer ran a big, huge splash, giving out that Britons abroad are going to lose access to the health insurance card. But like this, this was the consequence. And we want to make sure that the people in Northern Ireland do not suffer this, these consequences needlessly. I think it's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do, but also it will be of a benefit for all the people of the island if they can continue to access this level of healthcare. So just thinking strategically, the British government did, has left something of an open goal there for the Irish government uh, to do something that's going to be pretty widely popular and help with relations on the island because it you know, opens people's life prospects up. Mm. So what's quite interesting about the Brexit process is that like there are some areas of it or like policy areas that it touches on that are just more charismatic and get more <laughs> attention and more like symbolically important than others. Like, you know, for example, how the British government didn't defend the city of London at all, even though it's one of the country's biggest strengths. But it made like this huge deal over fish, which is relatively right. economically, you know, less important. Yeah, it's it's almost like these like economic concerns play out in the same way as like the jingo catchphrases, like sovereignty <laughs> and things. It's almost like fish, you know, was a big deal almost because the word fish like was a good piece of theatre. Uh, but what <laughs> happened? Like what happened with fish in the end? What happened with fish? Okay, in a nutshell, basically, um, a, a kind of relatively recent development in like international law is that states have exclusively econ- exclusive economic zones which stretch for two hundred nautical miles up the coast. Um, this wasn't really set down when the UK joined the EU, um, but now that it's leaving, it does have this thing. So it causes a dilemma because in the EU, there's a quota system where EU boats share the waters and the fish in them. Um, And a major argument that Brexiteers made was, oh, we've got all of these economic waters now defined. And if we leave, we can take all of this fish with us and we'll have like tons of fish. Uh, Because obviously, uh, Britain is an island that's like plonked in the middle of the North Sea. So Mm. it actually its economic waters account for like a huge chunk of where European fishermen would have been fishing for right. decades and decades and centuries, actually, before any of this economic zone stuff existed. Um, so it was this dilemma. Um, Britain basically said, give us all the fish. You know, we're going to kick out all your boats. Essentially, it's what they said. And mm. the EU was like, if you do that, we won't let you sell fish to us. And you'll just be stuck with all this fish because basically UK fishermen rely on European EU consumers to eat the fish. The Brits eat like prawns and stuff that comes from yeah, other places. They I've don't eat this. the stuff that they catch. Oh. <laughs> um, so it was kind of this uh, stalemate. Mm. It was a very difficult issue. It was the final issue to be agreed. But in the end, the EU agreed to give up 25% of the value of catch that its boats currently catch in those waters, which is actually quite a lot, particularly for Ireland, because it, it kind of takes away a lot of the most lucrative catch of Irish fishermen. Mm. Um, but what was paid less attention to in Britain? You know, there was this headline of like, we're getting back loads of fish. And it's like, that's good. But, you know, what was less paid attention to is the fact that even without tariffs, even though there aren't tariffs, There are so many safety standards and paperwork that become necessary because it's now a country outside of the EU selling fish into the single market that 
it basically makes it a non-profitable proposition to fish for loads of British fish businesses. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Um, so, the, in theory, Britain has the, you know, Britain has the ability to catch more fish. But, like, loads of businesses are just going bust because they sell all their fish to the EU. And they can't anymore. It's not viable because of the hurdles that they have to jump through. Jesus, Naomi. <laughs> Here is a former Leave supporter who owns a fish business explaining his predicament. If I could turn the clock back, would I have voted Leave? Of course not. I don't want to stay in. You know, it's um, for the future of my, my family, not so much me. You know, I'm coming to the end of my career. But to go forward, I think... I think me and, and many, many, many others have perhaps made a mistake. I just thought there'd be a better future for, for, for myself and, and, and for my children and my children's children to become independent, to, to have our own fishing grounds, to be able to, to, to be independent, to be able, you know, for Europe to rely on us. The reality is we're now January 20. We've yet to send a consignment to Europe from Brixham. It has just been an absolute nightmare. 44 years I've been selling fish. And overnight, it's pretty much been destroyed. And somewhere, of course, where this is particularly hitting the fan is Scotland and the shellfish industry there. Um, businesses are describing their catch literally rotting on the pier side because they can't get it to their customers in the yeah. continent. Um, this is the owner of Loch Fine Langustines, who's been really r raising hell over social media. I've been quiet for a couple of days to see how things have went. Uh, it's getting worse. It's unbelievable the situation we're in here. The 13th of January, and we can't get any product to the EU market whatsoever. We've been made a fool of. The fishing industry have been made a fool of by the Westminster government. I'm, I'm dismayed, I'm angry. My blood is boiling, there's boats tied up, there's families fishing boats tied up. We can't get our product to the EU market because of red tape, extra paperwork. It's an absolute disgrace what we've had to go through. I've just watched Prime Minister's questions. Ian Blackford for Sky and Lachabers just asked and told the Prime Minister about a £40,000 loss of one of his constituents in Sky and Lachaber, a shellfish exporter that's lost thousands, tens of thousands of pounds, the same as us and the same as every exporter around Scotland. The Prime Minister of the UK dismissed, dismissed Ian Blackford. He started rambling on about something else. Prime Minister and Michael Gove, I can assure you if Scottish exporters can't get their product to market next week, we will be at the gates of Westminster and we'll be dumping our shellfish on your doorstep, rotten. The same way as the Westminster UK government is rotten to the core. So all of these charismatic businesses, the same ones that kind of fueled the notion of Brexit, you know, it, these are the kind of people in whose name Brexit was done to a large extent. Um, they're expressing their wrath and, you know, you're getting this like vivid images of rotting fish and everything. They're driving down to Parliament to protest all of this. And here's the weird thing. OK, 
all of this just falls on deaf ears. In Westminster, the British government just doesn't seem to get it. Um, They they don't seem to see any political peril for them here at all. Here's Mm. Jacob Rees-Mogg in Parliament commenting on the issue. The key is we've got our fish back. They're now British fish, and they're better and happier fish for it. Oh my God, Naomi! I mean, these this kind of like funny, funny fantasy um, Brits are best stuff. Like that was irksome, I suppose, during um, the the actual kind of process of Brexit. But now, but that these guys like cannot make a profit from fish again, like that that fishermen are are out of business. I can just, I cannot imagine the resentment that must be in the industry towards someone who would say something like that with a straight face. Right, as well, because like, Rees-Mogg is one of these kind of caricature English politicians whose appeal just does not travel far. Like, he, outside of England, he just looks absurd. Mm. And, like, the way that, just, like, strategically, the way that these Tory politicians are acting, it's, it's like they're caught on one side of a culture war and they're, like, trapped there. Mm. And it makes them unable to rationally respond to new circumstances, even when it's in their own deep self-interest to do so. So, Mm. like, if you're a unionist, assuming, like, Mr. Jacob Genius Mogg uh, (laughs) is a unionist, right? What he just said there is, like, just about the most destructive thing he could have said to his own interests and Mm. aims. You know, like, he's basically sitting there and, like, twiddling his moustache in a top hat. You know what I mean? Like, if you're someone in Scotland or elsewhere, the whole thing has been, like, for years now, like, a big morality play that's enacting why it's not good to be in a union with England and the British government there just does not care for your interests. Right. Well, and as we saw at the beginning of this episode, uh, that does not normally go well. Right. Um, so it goes beyond Scotland, right? I mean, like Scotland is the most pressing in a way because there are literally elections there in a few months time and the main party in power wants independence and wants a referendum on it. Mm. And, you know, wasn't that far away from winning one just a few years ago. Mm. But, you know, it's affecting Wales as well. Like, for example, I can't seem to go on Twitter without seeing, like, Yes Cymru memes. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, and, like, that makes it all the more kind of noticeable that the previous uh, Scottish referendum was so based around similar kind of constructive unionist arguments. And Mm. like you're saying, Naomi, yeah, like... Really, it's hard to make those arguments at all anymore. What's left? Like, what's the argument that's left? Um, Speaking of being trapped in a culture war uh, that makes you act against your own interests, (laughs) what about the role of the DUP in all of this? Oh, my God. It's it's stunning. (laughs) Like, as as a political artifact, the record of the DUP over the last few years is kind of impressive. So the DUP not only backed Brexit, which was against its own interests, like, it unpicked and just dissolved a lot of the settlement around Northern Ireland's place in the Union. Um, But they also, not only did they back Brexit, but they they insisted doggedly on the very hardest possible version of it, like the most destructive version. Mm. And they actually vetoed, they, they, their party vetoed, brought down the Theresa May deal, you know, that would have avoided a border in the Irish Sea. Like, Mm. it's crazy. Yeah, for them, like, really. It's crazy for them, yeah. And, th- and, th- and then, of course, they backed Boris Johnson, um, who, you know, ended <laughs> up pursuing this really radical version of Brexit that made a really hard Irish sea border inevitable. 
And like they they kind of sat there. I mean, like I'd, with all respect, but they kind of sat there like clowns listening to him lie to them. Like here's Boris Johnson making a speech at the DUP conference in 2019. If we genuinely wanted to do free trade deals, if we wanted to cut tariffs on, as we should, by the way, on food from uh, to make food cheaper for our people for, from sub-Saharan Africa or whatever, if we wanted to vary our regulation then we would have to leave Northern Ireland behind as an economic semi-colony of the EU. And we would be damaging the fabric of the Union with regulatory checks and even customs controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland on top of those extra regulatory checks down the Irish Sea that are already envisaged in the withdrawal agreement. Now, I have to tell you, no British Conservative government could or should sign up to any such arrangement. And so... So he's basically just argued against everything that he himself went on to do. Like, he's saying, get rid of Theresa May and her deal and support me instead, only to go on himself to pursue an even more extreme version of everything that the DUP opposes. And the DUP are in this clip clapping him, like they've totally bought in, they're cheering. And even to this day, they won't admit that they made a mistake or that Brexit was a bad idea to begin with. Stop. And like they just, they just look daft. Here's Sarah Crichton, um, unionist commentator and lawyer who we've had on the pod before. She wrote a blog about it on Slugger O'Toole, um, basically arguing that it's past time for the UP and unionism in general to just ditch all reliance on the UK Conservative Party. Mm. Like, despite the fact that that party's full name is actually officially the Conservative and Unionist Party, they're actually are beyond indifferent towards Northern Ireland. They're, they're actually, you know, destructive unionists towards it. So here's Sarah. It's like watching someone go back to the ex who treated them like crap over and over again. When are the DUP going to realise the Conservatives aren't your friends? Ditch them, dump them, appoint a friend to stop you if you go back there again. What's maddening is that we all know they will go back. Ever since the protocol became active on the 1st of January 2021, pictures of empty shelves have dominated the news. This could be a side effect of Brexit in general or COVID, but either way, businesses are panicked and we're one boat away from our entire supply chain falling into the Irish Sea. Who knows what the protocol will look like in a few years. The current situation is worrying. It's not just the DUP that needs to dump the Tories. Political unionism needs to reject them in every way. Dump them not just because they're responsible for austerity, poverty, windrush and every cruelty inflicted upon this country for the last 10 years. The house is on fire. The man who lit the match is sitting in Downing Street. We're arguing with each other while the roof collapses. We're all going to burn if we don't get our act together. What Jesus. a statement from Oh my a God. That is really, really incredibly powerful uh, words. I really, I, I, I feel uh, for Sarah Crichton there. This treatment from the British government is just so callous when you consider that, you know, unionist culture in Northern Ireland is standing up for them. 
you know mm -hmm. they're supposed to be like you know allies that's the whole thing and when when like um, Westminster or the Tories I should be more fair and refer to it more as the Tories when the Tories turn around and kick them in the face like this repeatedly it's just such an ungentlemanly move <laughs> like it's 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 so crass it's like scummy um, it's so scummy I can't think of yeah. like you know vile enough words to describe it it also it just leaves unionism politically and to some extent culturally kind of homeless you know mm. like who are they going to turn to like really as a kind of template of unionism in the in britain in british politics the labor party like that doesn't seem to work yeah labor parties ropey are like they could well go back to that kind of socially radical kind of you know heritage that we were talking about from the yeah, time of that's true uh, you yeah. know 1978 rebellion but anyway um you know, it's not just us, we, you know, at the Irish Passport who are <laughs> pointing out that this is a perilous moment for the union. Like, here's George Osborne. OK, he wrote this this week and he was actually chancellor in the British government who was in charge um, of the money when the Brexit referendum was held. So he's really like in the thick of it. Here's mm. what he wrote. Northern Ireland is already heading for the exit door. By remaining in the EU single market, it is for all economics, intents and purposes now slowly becoming part of the United Ireland. Its prosperity now depends on the relationship with Dublin and Brussels, not London. The politics will follow. Northern Irish Unionists always feared the mainland was not sufficiently committed to their cause. Now their short-sighted support for Brexit, an unbelievably stupid decision to torpedo Theresa May's deal that avoided separate Irish arrangements, has made those fears a reality. It pains me to report that most here and abroad will not care. It's cold. Jesus. <laughs> well, cold. Wow. Wow. That's uh, that's a pretty damning uh, statement in itself. Unionists probably hear this all the time. You know, why are you sticking with this crowd who are treating you like shit all the time? And we, you know, we should mention as well, it's, it's complicated. Like there's a, there's a whole set of complicated factors uh, in why people keep voting for the DUP, uh, for instance. Uh, but like it strikes me that um, the Tories and Westminster in general know that people will keep voting for the DUP, um, that unionists in Northern Ireland should keep voting, will keep voting for the DUP. So therefore, why would they do anything for them? You know, if they don't, if they're not risking losing their vote, which kind of gives the lie to why they're just able to lie to unionists in Northern Ireland with seeming impunity and, you know, turn them on their heads. Um, like it's, it's, it's pretty bad. This is a toxic situation. And I suppose like, you know, it brings us right through that history to once again, the union in crisis. Right. So destructive unionism, guys, that's what we're going to call these years. And it applies to the DUP, I think, as well as to the Conservative Party. Now, we had absolutely tons of requests for Brexit content and like explanations and stuff. And we just ran through a bunch of stuff um, that's actually pretty complex, um, just as quick as we could. Yeah. And I'm sure there's loads of listeners who have questions for us. So I tell you what, this is what you should do go to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport and send exactly. us a message of your questions. And what I'm going to do is I will hold a live stream and I'll take all of those questions and I will answer them. I'll, if I don't have the answer, I will look up the information and tell you and we can have a nice chat online that way. Telling you, where do you get that service, guys? There's a personal Irish passport Brexit <laughs> concierge service that Naomi is providing over on Patreon. So get yourself over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. Um, and by doing so, you'll also be supporting uh, the podcast, by the way. Well, Naomi, I think that's all we have time for uh, in this episode. And that brings us to a close for season four. 
Yes, a bumper finale. And as usual, we'll be taking a short hiatus to do the reporting and prepare for our next season. Um, but don't worry, we'll be back um, in a few weeks with a whole new season of The Irish Passport. Indeed. And by the way, we'll still be uploading extra content to Patreon by, during that time. So if you're in the mood for more Irish Passport while you're waiting for season five, you can check, check it out there. Thank you so much again to all of our supporters. We never got through this without you and you continue to keep us running a big slon to everyone and see you in season five. Slon, everyone. <laughs>